0: You know what a preacher needs? His Bible. (laughs) Thanks. thought you were snapping at me. Alright, we are going to be in Luke chapter 11. And last Sunday we met Mary and Martha. And Jesus showed us through them the one thing necessary for those who would follow Him. And that, as, that is to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to His Word. In fact, what Jesus says is that Mary uh, is enjoying the good portion, the good meal. She's feasting on Jesus. What we learned, right, is that, uh, that we can be busy, even busy doing good things, uh, imagining that we are serving Jesus. But if we're working for Jesus without ever spending time with Jesus, then we probably need to ask the question of, Are we actually working for Jesus? Or are we working for ourselves? But Jesus commends listening. And so I want you to think about that for a second, that when, when you engage with the Bible, that you are engaging with a living person who loves you and knows you and wants to be known by you. That's what happens when you read the Bible. That's what happens. You're engaging with a real person. We're not simply studying a book, but rather we are, uh, we are coming to listen to God so that we can know Him and we can enjoy Him. That's, that's the goal. And this next sermon goes along with that. Just like any, right, any good conversation has listening and speaking. Right. In fact, we would we would say that uh, a sign of a good, healthy relationship is that the communication is a two way street. There's listening and there's speaking. Whether that's a good friendship or a good marriage, there's listening and there's speaking. They go together, and so it is with God. And what we call that speaking when we speak to God, we call that prayer. And it's no accident that Jesus records a whole conversation on prayer after this episode with Mary and Martha. So we have we have Mary and Martha and sitting and listening to Jesus. And now, in Luke chapter 11, we're going to see uh, Jesus talk to his disciples about prayer. So listening to God's word and praying to God go together. They are the listening and speaking of our conversation with God. So let's read Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and we're going to primarily camp out uh, in verses 1 through 4 today. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, "'Lord, teach us to pray,' like John taught his disciples." And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask... know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, teach us what it means to pray. Teach us what our prayers are rooted in. God, may our, our prayers and even our talking about prayer come from your word. May, may your word guide us in this endeavor. Since you are the one that we speak to, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. You may know uh, that I was a band nerd in high school and college. In fact, I was the nerdiest of the nerds because I played tuba. That's right, that's that's that should be humorous, um, and every band that I was a part of in high school and in college had this kind of peculiar ritual. Uh, after we had finished our warmups and before we marched into the stadium, we would gather and pray the Lord's Prayer at least that's what that's what we call this you may have recognized those words if you're familiar with the bible uh Matthew has a longer version of this prayer in his gospel but well, we call this the lord's prayer technically it should be called the disciples' prayer because it's the lord teaching us how to pray but every band that i was a part of we would we would recite this prayer in our kind of pregame warm up huddle yes the band huddles uh before we before we lined up to march in now, the reason I call that curious is uh because while we all had this prayer memorized, very few of us actually believed what we were saying. At least I could say that for myself, that that my life at the time, uh in those moments, did not even come close to reflecting the values of this prayer. In fact, There was even a part of that time where I did not even believe in the God who taught us to pray this way. Uh, And yet, it was a part of the ritual um, that, I don't know if we just use it as kind of like a a lucky rabbit's foot um, to get hype for the game or, or whatever. But that's not how Jesus views this prayer. Jesus doesn't teach this as some kind of uh, ritual or uh, mantra or chant. Uh, He doesn't teach this as something that we just, uh, while it's good to memorize and pray this prayer, Jesus doesn't teach us this so that we will just blindly repeat it back expecting some kind of blessing in return. The God of the Bible doesn't work that way. Uh, That system is called karma. Uh, And it is very different from grace. Uh, In in karma, you input a certain thing hoping to get a certain thing out, right? So do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. But that's not how the God of the Bible works. Thankfully. Because, I don't know if you realize this, like all that we put in is bad. So if we were going to operate under a karma system, like all we would get back is bad. But... Under the system of grace that God operates uh, under, uh, that God operates through in His Son Jesus, uh, we put in bad, and He gives us good anyway. Uh, And so, uh, that's not Jesus doesn't teach this just so that we would blindly repeat it back to ourselves over and over again. Rather, Jesus is showing us what sort of things. Should shape our prayers. What does prayer look like, right? If, if prayer is a bucket, what sort of things go in that bucket? What sort of things does Jesus say should, uh, shape our prayer lives? Now before we jump into this, I want to just point out two things of interest. One, we have to be taught how to pray. Did you notice that? That, that the disciples have been watching Jesus pray, And once he begins to wrap it up, once he, once he's finished, they approach him and say, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Now these men have prayed before, right? These would have been faithful Jewish men more than likely. They've been in the synagogue. They've heard the scriptures read. They had said prayers. But yet they see something in Jesus that says, no, 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 we need to learn. Uh, we need to be taught how to pray, which really shouldn't come all, that that really shouldn't come as a shock to us, right? Um, you learned to speak, you don't remember this, but you learned to speak as a little child, right? You had to learn. In fact, when children uh, are removed from loving adults around them speaking, they don't learn how to speak, right? Their development is hindered. And so, just like we learn how to speak, we have to learn how to pray, and I, I want that to encourage you, because that means that prayer doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. That it's something we have to be taught and to learn how to do. So, one, we have to be taught how to pray. And two, Jesus gives this prayer as a, uh, as a community prayer. He gives it to His disciples as a group. They are to pray things like, our Father, right? Or, uh, forgive us. These, these are first person plural pronouns. I just pulled out some grammar language. Um, took you back to ninth grade. Right? So, these are prayers that we pray together. Now, we have become so afraid of empty ritual. And empty ritual is not a good thing. I'm not a fan. But we have become so afraid of empty ritual... Right, like, that belonged to our great grandparents' church. We don't do that anymore. That, that we no longer, like, that it actually makes us uncomfortable to, I don't know, read scripture together or pray prayers like this out loud together. Like, if you, if you, if you went and checked out, like, the Cool Hip Church, Right, it's all about creating an experience for an individual. So we're gonna get the lights down, we're gonna have the pros on the stage do all the work, and we're just, we're just there to kinda, to drink it all in. But Jesus doesn't envision that, right? That's not a New Testament picture of what the church looks like. The Bible doesn't give us a lot about what New Testament worship looks like, but our, our best, our best records show us that it was very participatory. Right? That there was, Mutual reading of the scriptures together—that that the the early church did pray together as they listened to God's word together. So, I want you to think about this. This is this is not just my prayer, and it's not just your prayer, but these are the things that are our prayer together. Uh, so, so what is uh, what is the gist of prayer? And here's here's kind of the overarching theme of this prayer that Jesus teaches: Prayer is the needy child talking with his father. That is that is prayer. That is That is the definition of prayer. It is a needy child talking with his father. In other words, prayer is the exact opposite of what we naturally gravitate to. I want to be strong. I want to be self-reliant. I want to be independent. I want to be tough. And what prayer says is, I need help. I'm incompetent. I'm impotent. I am am powerless to do things that really matter. I can impress people. Uh, I can can make a good show. But really when it comes down to it, I cannot do even one thing on my own. So, So prayer is admitting that. Prayer is admitting that we need help. We are needy. We are dependent. You need your dad's help. Constantly, to do what matters most. Which is why prayer grates against us, right? Usually, when when do we usually pray? Last resort, right? After I have burned through all of my resources, that's when I go to prayer. Uh, our friend uh, Paul, Connor, that I mentioned earlier, usually when we would be gathered as elders and we would be talking about, we say, well, we should probably pray about that. And And Paul would joke, he would say, oh, it's down to that. We have to pray. Right? Uh, We need to learn to pray first. Uh, Prayer is not a last resort. Rather, it is our communion with God. It is our it is our talking. Our we are needy children talking with our Father. So we're going to look at the different elements, six different elements of this prayer uh, and see what they teach us about our prayers. The first one is our approach our approach they say that if uh, that if you want to land a plane well if you want to have a good landing a good approach is key if you are not lined up correctly on the runway uh you're going to miss the runway or you're going to have a very rough landing right so key to a good landing is a good approach probably the most important thing that Jesus teaches us in this whole prayer is this very first word Jesus tells these men and us to call God Father. Father. Abba. Not Daddy. Dad be fine. Father. I want you to think about how revolutionary that is. Jesus is saying that the holy, glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent creator and sustainer of the universe, who is worthy of all worship and honor and reverence, you get to call Him Father. You approach Him as a son or a daughter would approach a dad. And this is really one of the most shocking claims of Christianity. If you're in Christ... You don't belong to a system, you don't belong simply to a religion, but you are in God's family. John 1, 12, To all who did receive Him, to all who did receive Jesus who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Romans eight fifteen. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father. Galatians 4, 6 and 7, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First John 3, 1, See what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And using this kind of intimate language when talking to or about God was uncommon in Jesus' day. It wasn't totally out of the ordinary, but it was very uncommon. It was very uncommon for Jewish people to refer to God as Abba, as Father. And you know what? It's pretty uncommon in ours too. We're still not comfortable with this, right? Right? Uh, maybe you talk about God in vague, like, country music terms, you know, the man upstairs, something like that. Even among religious people, uh, we usually have a hard time embracing the intimacy of this term, right? We, we may use the word Father, but what we imagine Him to be is an angry volcano waiting to explode, or a stern taskmaster tapping his foot in disappointment, We have a hard time acknowledging God is our Father. And not just our Father, but He is gladly our Father. That this is not just symbolic language, this is how God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him as our Father. And not in the general like the Father of all mankind sense. That The Bible doesn't teach that. Right? God is not the Father. He, every human being on the planet is made in the image of God, but only those who are in Christ have the right to call God their Father. And we're going to talk about why in just a little bit. But J.I. Packer, in a very helpful book, Knowing God, I would uh, I would commend this book to you. Great resource, uh, wonderful study. J.I. Packer says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, how much does he make of the, of, of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father? If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, and prayer, and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Does the idea of God as your Father prompt your worship, direct your worship, your prayer? Is your entire outlook on life shaped by the reality that God has brought you into His family and that you can call Him Dad? Is that... What drives you to the throne of grace? And this, this core truth is the ground of everything else, right? If I could have, if I could have done it, right, I I would have tried to arrange the words on the screen where it said our approach and then all the other prayers that come in this kind of flowing from that. The idea of God as our Father informs all the other things that we pray. This is, this is the ground of it all. Imagine your dad as President of the United States and you get to run into the Oval Office whenever you want. The halls of power are not closed to you. Whatever important meeting is happening with whatever important dignitary to address whatever major crisis, uh, you can go find your big brother, Jesus, and you guys can go to the Oval Office together and he opens the door and allows you in. And you get to climb up in his lap and tell him what's going on. Because whatever crisis is out there, he's happy to address the crisis that you're facing. That is what we have. So when, when we come to prayer, let's, let's start here. If you remember nothing else about this sermon, remember this, that, that prayer, prayer is not a box to be checked. It is not a ritual to be performed. Take a few minutes. Uh, Martin Luther said that uh, whenever we come to God in prayer, every, every person ought to start by putting his hand over his mouth. By just being silent. Take a few minutes to realize that you're coming into the throne room of your Father in Heaven. That the, the God to whom you speak, and to whom you, uh, the God who's, who you give thanks for, the God that you bring your request to, is your Father. And what is it that my father wants to hear from me? What sort of things does Jesus say should shape our prayers? The first thing Jesus says is, "Hallow your name. May your name be hallowed." That's a that's a word we use a lot. Hallow. Um, basically, what Jesus is saying is that we're 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 asking that God's name would be honored and would be treated as holy. Now, why God's name? Well, God's name represents God, just like your name represents you. If I say, Paul Smith, we know who I'm talking about, right? There's a certain person with a certain look and a certain set of characteristics, okay? Uh, and if I were to say something about Paul Smith that was not true, what would be Paul Smith's right response? hey, that's not true, that's not who I am, right? And so uh, the first thing Jesus wants us to pray for is the honoring of God's name, of his character, of his worth. Jesus teaches us to pray that God's name would rightly be honored and glorified. First, by those who bear his name. So if you are in Christ, you bear the name of God. You're in his family. It's the family name like when your parents would drop you off at the mall and there would be that, that stern talking to you right before you got out the door, remember whose you are, right? Careful, and whatever you're about to do in there, that's going to come back, right? And so this is a prayer that we, who bear God's name, would honor God's name. But it's also a prayer that God's name would be honored in places where it is not, that God would be rightly known by others who do not yet know Him. That's what we're praying for. And I don't want you to hear that as simply, I must live a righteous life so that I make God proud. So that I make God look good. That's not really what we're praying. The, the heart of this prayer, rather, is, is, as one theologian put it, that we would be captivated with wonderment for Him. When when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're praying for yourself, for your wife, for your family, that you would be captivated by the wonder of God. That's what what we're, we're praying. That God's steadfast love would captivate us. Jesus also teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come. I referenced Augustine earlier. He said this, that God is reigning now... But just as light is absent to those refusing to open their eyes, so it is possible to refuse God's rule. And if you think back to the garden and to original sin, what is the sin that breaks the world? It is the first man and the first woman refusing to be ruled by God. Rather, they seek to rule things for themselves. Now, thankfully, we don't struggle with that anymore. We don't have that problem. How does that work for you? When you aim to rule things your way, rather than to to submit to God's rule. So when we pray this, what we're praying, uh, when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're praying that His Lordship would rule our hearts, would rule our minds, would rule our mouths, would rule our actions. This is a prayer that God would order my life around His kingdom priorities. That what matters to God would matter to me. Not Kevin's priorities, but rather that God's priorities would become my priorities. This is also a prayer that looks to the future. Uh, that, that one day God's kingdom will come, and when it finally and fully does come, all evil will be eradicated, and all good will be made permanent. When we pray, God may your kingdom come, we're asking God to hasten that day. To bring, to bring about all good and to eradicate all evil. And so Jesus begins uh, in the same way uh, he does in Matthew's prayer that our prayers begin with God's priorities, right? God's name, God's kingdom. And then we get we we also uh, there there are things that involve us. There are things that we pray about. Uh, God's name and God's kingdom come first, but then Jesus teaches us to uh ask God for our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. This is a uh, this is a prayer for daily provision, uh, which is tricky for us. Uh, one, because we don't live in a daily economy. We live, you know, most of us either in a weekly, a bi-weekly, a monthly economy, right? Or, uh, you know, we, what we really want to do is just store up enough stuff so that we can feel comfortable. But that's not this prayer. This prayer teaches us to look to our Father's hand every single day for every single need. Right as the uh, Proverbs 38:30 30, Proverbs 30 verse 8 says this Give me neither poverty lest I resent you nor riches lest I forget you Give me neither poverty nor riches but feed me with the food needful for me Right again needy children constantly looking to the hand of a good father so our provision and isn't it great that uh, that our provision is important to God? That He's not uh, He. It's not that He doesn't care about our needs; rather, He wants us to bring them to Him. So our provision, but also our pardon. Jesus teaches us to pray that, to forgive us our sins. Now, wait a second. I thought Jesus already forgave me, my sins. Why do I have to keep praying this? It's true, yes, Jesus has died once for all. What this prayer acknowledges is that we continue to need the grace and forgiveness provided by His death. Why do we continue to need that grace? Because we continue to sin. And Jesus' payment covers that debt. But you and I need to constantly acknowledge that. We need to constantly come before God and acknowledge that... That we need forgiveness. In fact, the moment when you won't need this prayer is when you're in the presence of God and unable to sin for the rest of eternity. Until that moment, you won't have arrived and you'll need to keep praying this. And we need to pray it specifically. We don't just pray kind of a catch-all, hey, forgive me for any sins I may have done today. Right? We need to pray specifically. And if we can't think of anything... Like if, if we can't think of any sins that we've committed against other people or against God, a, let's talk. Uh, B, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind ways that you have sinned against others and against God, uh, and then bring those to Him. We call that repentance, right? Uh, and then Jesus says something interesting. He says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus says that if you understand how much you have been forgiven, then you will forgive everyone who is indebted to you. That if you understand the the magnitude of the forgiveness that you've received from God, then it really... Listen, I know this is difficult, but that enables you to forgive other people. To the extent that another person's sin against you uh, seems unforgivable, what you're basically saying is that um, that there is that, that, that their sin against you is greater than your sin against God. That's what you're saying. But if you are unable to forgive someone, and I realize that forgiveness, especially for deep trauma, is hard. But if you are unable to forgive someone, it means that you don't have a full grasp of how great your debt is before a holy God. That, that no one can sin against you nearly as much as you have sinned against God the Father. And He grants forgiveness. And so, if He grants forgiveness, we too should be able to forgive others. Our forgiveness from God flows out in forgiveness to others. Our provision, our pardon, and our protection, Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. What this is, is a prayer for honesty. Uh, a, prayer for, a prayer for me to be honest with myself, that in some ways I'm my own worst enemy. That if put in the right situation, if given the right opportunity, I'm going to fall. And so this is a prayer that God would keep uh that from happening that God would keep me out for, uh, out of that opportunity away from that opportunity. Um, uh, one one way to look at it is this uh when desire and opportunity meet that would be temptation. So you could put me in a room full of starburst and sweet tarts and uh lollipops and I'm I'm not going to fail. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna falter, cause none of those things are appealing to me. I'm just not a sweet candy kind of guy. You put me in a room full of dark chocolate, we're gonna have a gluttony problem. Okay? That's where desire and opportunity come together to create the conditions for temptation. Okay? Uh, if you've ever seen me at the dessert table, there's a reason, by the way, I hang out from Soup Sunday. Uh, I'm hoping that most of Miss Merlene's cheesecake is devoured before I get there, because I am unable to operate self-control in that case, all right? When desire and opportunity come together, that's temptation. This prayer is, is saying, God, I can't do it. Father, I cannot handle that kind of that kind of opportunity to indulge my desire. Would you keep me from that? Would you keep me from that which is not good for me? That is what, that is what this prayer is. It is a, it is a prayer to be protected from myself. You know, we, pr- we pray all the time for, for travel mercies, now that we would be protected on the road. This prayer acknowledges that whatever's gonna happen, whatever may happen to you on the road is not nearly as, as detrimental to you as what can happen in your own heart. We need to be protected from ourselves more than, more than anything else. Right? An injury in a, an injury in a sporting match is not nearly as deadly as me indulging some. We need to be protected from ourselves. So, our approach, God's name, God's kingdom, our provision, our pardon, our protection. Now, Jesus doesn't mention this here, but if you hear Christians pray, they usually finish it with this phrase, in Jesus' name. You ever think about why we do that? It's not a hashtag. It's not a tagline. It's not like a period on the end of the sentence or an exclamation point or anything like that. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Well, because Jesus' name is what opens the door to the Father. In fact, we can't even call God Father unless we have Jesus, unless we are in Jesus. You see, He's the He's the only Son. He's the only begotten Son. And in order for us to be sons and daughters adopted by God, we have to be adopted in Christ. The analogy kind of falls apart, but in other words, He's the one who's done the, the necessary paperwork so that we can be called sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name because without the name of Jesus, we're not a part of the family. And we don't have access, we don't have access to the throne room of the universe. We can't pray any of these other things. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself, am I in Christ? Am I in Jesus? Have I repented and believed in the name of Jesus so that I can be saved from my sins? So that I can be called a daughter? So that I can be called a son? Come to Jesus. Come resting in Him alone. And the storehouses of the Father are open to you. Let's pray. Lord Most High, we acknowledge that we can call You a holy and good God and we can call You Father. Thank You for the work of Jesus that opens that door to us. Teach us to pray, Lord. We need your help. Teach us to see you as our Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and receive a return, thanks rather, to God's goodness through our gifts.